Buzz, Buzz and Woody fans out there? Yeah. It's very hard not to love Toy Story. Those are some amazing characters that I think never get old. But isn't it a little hard to watch Buzz kind of go through that existential crisis? I mean, he's asking some deep questions of himself. Who am I? What's my purpose? What's my identity? What's my mission? When he gets that mission wrong, he's off delusional. He thinks he's Buzz, or uh, intergalactic ranger. He's fighting Zorg. Uh, he's jumping off the top of the stairs, knocking his arms off. Uh, but when he gets his mission right, he realizes, hey, I'm a toy, and that's okay. <laughs> um, the mission becomes clear. His mission is to really love his owner, Andy, and be there for him. And you know, here's what I know. When it comes to great art, it always is trying to tell us something about the human condition, the human struggle. And toys and movies really aren't the only ones who are suffering through trying to figure out what their, what their mission is in life. This morning, I want to walk us through a case from the Bible that makes it clear, I think, that we are going to be struggling with exactly the same sort of thing. So let's start off here and actually review where Dave took us last week. So last week, Dave brought up the verse Matthew 4.19 and kind of wanted to walk us through our missional focus for the year. This is a verse with some great vision about what it means to be a disciple and make disciples. And so there's three parts in this. Come, follow me. So that's step one, where we for the first time say, hey, I'm putting my trust in Christ. He's Lord of my life. He's in charge. He gets to call the shots. That we make that our intention for the first time. And then step two, then he will make us. Okay, we will be transformed. Now we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to move us to a new location. His goal for our lives is over time to sanctify us, to make us like Jesus, and to, and to put him on mission with him, which is part three. He wants to make us fishers of men. At that point, we're really in the fight, not just for ourselves, but for others. His desire is to invite us to participate with him in his goal to bring his kingdom down to earth to every man, every woman on the planet and and have this be a different place. And so we really want to narrow in today on that third piece, uh, the whole get on mission part. Now, virtually every believer I know struggles with getting on mission. It's just a reality of walking on this earth and being in this life. I mean, I don't know how many times in my adult life I've thought to myself, it sounds like a really good idea in my head to be on mission. I believe in that. That's what I think I should be doing. And then when I look in and see what I'm actually doing and where my passions are flowing to, sometimes there's just a disconnect. These things are not adding up. I really enjoyed, uh, if you were here for New Year's Eve, we showed kind of a best of message by Erwin McManus called The Last Arrow. Anybody here for that? Remember that? Just some great insights. I mean, Erwin was saying it's so common for us to get to the point where we're saying it feels like something is missing here, like my life is not adding up, um, and I haven't left it all on the battlefield. And, you know, this is a serious question. I don't think any of us uh, want to spend a significant portion of our lives on just the wrong mission, okay? Or in Toy Story speak, we don't want to spend a big chunk of our lives knocking our arms off, right? and concussing ourselves. So what do we do about that? Well, I wanna dig in on a couple questions today that I think really speaks into this. You know, two of the more important questions that I think we can ask. One is, why is it that we are not more on mission for God, okay? And then two, 
What can we do about that? Okay, why is it we're not more on mission and what can we do about it? And I just wanna start here with some, some straight talk that I think you know, applies to all of us. I mean, the reality is each of us, virtually without exception, is currently devoting our lives to the mission that's captured our heart, okay? To the thing we love. We do this virtually without thinking and, and very naturally, and then the rest of our resources in our life, our time, our talent, our treasure, just flow right into that same thing. We devote ourselves to the mission that's capturing our heart. And now surely Jesus wants us though on his mission, okay? The mission that's best for us. And that's why when he boils down in the New Testament, kind of the sum total of the teachings and commands of the New Testaments, he starts with the big one, the first half of the great commandment. This is in Matthew 22, and I'll just read it for you here, Matthew 22, 37 through 38. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. God knows that if our heart is captured by him, we're gonna be on his mission. And if it hasn't, we're not. And the Old Testament really started in, in the same place, uh, in the Ten Commandments. We'll, we'll dust those off today. Probably the last time you've seen Ten Commandments was Easter-ish, right? Charlton Heston version. We'll do the real version here. Commandment one, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Sounds a lot like the Great Commandment in terms of putting God first, but it's interesting we don't really talk about the second commandment that much. Okay, commandment two in Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth below, or sorry, in the earth beneath or in the water below. And the structure of these first two commandments is kind of a, you know, like a do this, don't do that. Okay, do love God and worship him. Don't love and worship idols. Don't love and worship substitutes for me. That, that word idol is literally just a substitute, a counterfeit. It's something that's created that we're tempted to worship instead of worshiping the creator, the only uncreated thing that's been here eternally. And you know, I suppose we don't talk about the idol thing all that often because we probably think we're not doing it, at least not the Old Testament version. I mean, the Old Testament idols just strike us as old-fashioned and, and weird. Uh, they're Asherah poles made out of sticks, uh, Baal idols made out of bronze. I mean, I don't have sticks in my backyard that I worship, right? And neither do you. I don't know anybody who does uh, the, the stick thing. But that doesn't mean we don't have idols that we worship. We can't relate to the, to the idols of the Old Testament, but we have different cultural idols today, okay? We have a full-blown, materialistic, capitalistic society today. We have TV and Hollywood and the internet. We have 24-hour fitness and a half a trillion dollar beauty industry. We've got sports galore, we've got activities galore, we've got so many things going on, all of which become potential opportunities for us to value something at a level that they don't deserve, to value them ultimately and make them an object of worship. And the Bible says that the human heart is at very high risk of doing this. This is a risk intrinsic to every single person on the planet and in this room. I want to go to Ezekiel 14. Um, 
This is kind of the Lord speaking and giving a commentary on the state of Israel and the fact that they were so seeking idols at the time rather than him. And two ideas here. One, these men and women have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks in front of their faces, before their faces. Two powerful images here of we have a tendency to nest these idols deep down inside of our hearts and treasure them. And then when we do that, they become wicked stumbling blocks right in front of our faces. John Calvin, the famous theologian, has is, 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 is got a great quote that says, we as humans love to turn our human heart into an idol factory. We just are great at stamping these things out, uh, idols that are alternatives to God and things we, we just seek and, and, uh, and run after. But... Uh, by far the best treatment of idols I've ever seen is a book by Tim Keller. Hopefully you've heard of Tim Keller. This is a book called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, just an amazing thinker of the 21st century. I'm going to borrow liberally from, from Keller today and kind of this treatment of idols and try to walk us through some examples and, and definitions to help us think through where we might be harboring some idols in our lives. So let's take a look at this. Um, I'll give you two definitions from Keller to try to just sort this out. So number one is, what is an idol? Okay, what is an idol? Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, okay? Only what God can give. And, I, and I'm sure this is why God is so faithful to warn us about idols. He wants the best life possible for us, okay? He wants us to be fulfilled. If we're seeking fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment in, in something that can't give it, like an idol, we can't have the best life possible. And so there's a strong warning not to do this. That's the purpose of, of the guidance. Now, bear in mind, we usually think about idols as, again, in this Old Testament context, but idols are not always bad things, okay? They can be, they can be, addictions or immoral things, but more often than not, particularly for moderns, idols are actually good things, okay? But good things that we then turn into ultimate things and make them a struggle in our lives. So for example, we could be talking about many different types of, of good things in our lives. I mean, you could have a job, that's a good thing, creative talent, children, all good things, but they are not intended and actually can't function and are dangerous when we value them as ultimate things, things that are being, being, making them into something they were never intended to be, making them gods in our life that we worship and ascribe ultimate value to. Another way to think about this I think is really helpful, too, an, an idol is whatever you look at and then say in your heart, in your heart of hearts deep down, if I have that then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So these idols are places we go to find value. And the danger is they can't truly give us the value that, that God can give us. Instead, you know, in the worst case, they can even enslave us, and they do. Um, that was certainly my experience with idols. I found my idol very early on in life. Um, I think it started in a fairly innocent way, but it started in second grade. 
Um, I was a wee little tot. Uh, it was, I remember it clearly. For the first time in class, we had a test uh, that everybody had to participate in, and it was a public test. So we had, it was arithmetic, math, which I love. Uh, you had to do 50 or 100 problems and then turn it up on the, on the teacher's desk and uh, run up to the front, and I got there first. And I got 100%, and everything was right, and I got my first gold star. Uh, and then every test like that that we ever did, I always won. And I was really good at it. And so this made me feel good about myself. This made me feel like I, I was significant. And I started running after that particular set of results. Um, throughout my youth, um, when it came to grades and all these things, I was just flabbergasted how much time and energy I was willing to pour into doing those things. Became valedictorian, went off to college, PhD in physics. I was running this race hard and, and, and could run it with a lot of energy because of the feelings it gave me, a feeling significant in that one area of my life, uh, something I could really feel like I could bank on. In fact, I became a professor, and uh, I was actually so bored by being a professor, professor after a couple of years, I left it. Reason being, there was no more races to be won. No more tests to be had there. I didn't feel like there was enough uh, things to, to gain, so I ran off to industry, went to a 30,000-person, super competitive technology company, and there, there was a new race I could run. It was called Get a Promotion. <laughs> a different race to be won. Um, and started running that race over and over again. Uh, was uh, promoted 10 times in 10 years, and again, was willing to put infinite amount of energy into that race. But towards the end of it, I started to learn a few things. One, every step along the way with that idol required more and more of my energy, more and more of my heart, more and more of my dedication. By the end of this, I'm not sure if I was running the race or if the idol was. I was literally enslaved to something that was insatiable. And, and, and idols can do that to us. And so we have to be careful. We have to be really diligent about looking out for these in our lives. So, so that's my story and, 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 and was my idol something I struggled with? You may be wondering, so how do I identify my idol, the idol in my life that might be, might be just wrestling for my, for my heart uh, away from God? Well, I want to look at a couple things. The, the easiest way to do this is actually to look at your negative emotion, I think. I mean, God's given us negative emotions for a reason. Things like fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. These are warning signs from God saying nothing, something here is not quite right, okay? There's something that you're, you're not trusting me in. There's something where um, you're worried and it means something. So we should start by looking at our negative emotion. And the first place I'd recommend you look is at, at your nightmares, okay? What do you fear the most? What if you lost it? You're not sure life would be worth worth living. And we've got to be honest about this stuff and look in here and say, what's going on down there? Is it your success like, like it was for me? What was it for the rich young ruler in the Bible? Right? His money. He, he couldn't bear the thought of losing that. Is it your physical attractiveness? Is it your sports competence? Is it your, I don't know. But looking in there at what you're most afraid of losing is a great place to start looking. Okay, the second area Look at your most unyielding emotions, okay? The emotions that just will not go away and are the fiercest in your life, the negative ones. What makes us quickly and uncontrollably angry? 
anxious, or despondent. These negative emotions are often roadmaps to where those idols are hiding inside of us. And, you know, there's a lot of places to look for these within our culture. I mean, for myself, as the, as the father of a couple teenagers and more to come, I get a lot of time to observe youth and youth culture. And, and one thing I see is that, you know, when we look in on our young people, I think objectively they're incredibly anxious, okay? A strong negative emotion. When you look at rates of young people's anxiety, teen addiction, teen depression, teen anything, those rates are going the wrong way. Our, our kids are objectively anxious, and the idols that seem to be driving this to me are, are one, being accepted and approved, particularly by their peers. Okay, acceptance is a, a big deal. And the second is probably their physical appearance, and those two are often tied together, being accepted for your physical appearance. And, and, and our young people are asking themselves a lot of questions all the time, okay? Am I thin enough? Am I built enough? Am I dressed the right way? Am I getting enough likes on social media? Am I, there's a lot going on there, folks. And it is anxiety inducing to be asking yourself all those questions all the time. And by the way, to be running a race there, which I think is unwinnable, and that's not worth running in the first place. Okay, and so parents, you know, on this subject, you know, my, my advice is to fight. Fight to train your kids that, number one, their ultimate acceptance and love comes from God, okay, and it comes from him without strings attached. Uh, it comes from him absolutely, and two, that you love and accept them absolutely in unconditional terms, Okay, those two things are going to be the framework by which they choose not to run that race because it, as they run it, they're looking for something that, you know, cannot be provided and, and we don't want them to do that. Wherever we are in our, in, our, in our idols, whether it's this idol or something else, I'm going to really encourage us today too to just be willing to do something called play the movie, okay? And by play the movie, I mean like play the movie forward in your mind's eye and see what the outcomes are before this set of circumstances happens. I think this is a great wisdom practice um, where, for example, we can recognize the consequences of something we're about to do that's negative before we do it and, and not do that. Or when it comes to idolatry, look in on the race we're running here and say, hey, what's the end game of this? Oh, how does it look like if I keep doing these bad behaviors I'm doing that, that don't satisfy? like something with idolatry. And so I want to play the movie here with a specific type of idol, uh, particularly one in the creative arts. I know we have a lot of creative people at K2. And uh, so if, if, if the idol in your life is something like a creative art, it could be singing, dancing, acting, any of the suite of things involving creativity, if we make that something that gives us ultimate meaning and purpose in life, then it's an idol. If it's something we go for value to validate ourselves, but let's, let's play the movie on this forward. If you do that, and that's what's giving you your value, you'd better be amazing at it. Each and every time. All the time. For the rest of your life. Okay? Because that quality of your performance is what's going to give you a sense of worth. That thing you want. To be 
valued in life? Well, what happens if I have an off night or an off week or an off year? What happens then? Um, What if I'm injured or start to age and my talents degrade? Remember, in this scenario, you're responsible for creating transcendent beauty in your life, okay? And your performance determines if your life has meaning. Let's look in on one of the the most successful creative artists of, of, of all time and a bestseller, a Madonna. Forgive me for this. Madonna was like popular when I was in high school. Uh, she's faded a bit, but Madonna had, had this to say, and it, it, this is powerful to me, okay? My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. Okay, there's the negative emotion. Fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I mean, do you see how this type of idol can only give you conditional love? Conditional. Conditioned upon you being good enough, smart enough, anything enough to earn it. I mean, this is exhausting. Uh, We need to play the movie forward on this and realize that these idols are, are definitely destined to let us down. Uh, you know, and I want to be clear about this again. Creativity is not a bad thing, okay? God created us to be creative just like he is. It's only a bad thing if we make it an idol or an ultimate thing. In its natural place, creativity is something to be thankful for. It's something to be used to give God, God praise and worship. And when that happens, great. We can be thankful. But if it doesn't and you lose it, so What? you still have ultimate worth in his eyes, independent of whether this gift is working out or not. So I just want us to think about that. It's not the source of our worth, um, these these created things and these abilities. So just back to Madonna for a second. Stare at that quote one more time. I want to ask you this question. How much of her time and energy do you think she's willing to give to this struggle? Since it determines if she's somebody or nobody. I mean, it's got to be massive. It's got to be epic. I mean, do you see how having an idol like this would be an impediment and prevent us from being on mission for Christ? If we're on mission, we're on mission for something, folks. Okay, we're on mission for something. Uh, If we're on mission for something that's captured our heart that's different, We can't be on mission for God. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be wanting to eat our time, our energy, our resources. So what do we do? What do we do with these idols that we have in our lives? Um, Again, the Bible is super clear on this. Um, The concept here is, is, is God commands us to tear these things down, okay? Tear them down. And, And the primary thing I want to communicate here is we are going to have to fight to tear these idols down in our lives. It's not gonna be easy. It's gonna come with some challenge to root these things out of our hearts. And whenever the Old Testament references, hey, get rid of the idol, move on from the idol, um, these are the type of references that come up. They're all filled with a lot of, and I'll just be honest about this, intensity, okay? So our first one here is from 2 Kings. This is 2 Kings 18. This is referring to King Hezekiah. He was David's son, and 
and the Lord was uh, commanding him to get the idols out of Israel. And this is what uh, the scene looked like. So he, King Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, and broke into pieces the bronze snake. And in the second reference in Ezekiel 6, this is now God himself speaking about what he's going to do to the idols and the nations of Israel based on uh, them being worshipped so prolifically. God, the Lord says, Your altars will be laid to waste and devastated. Your idols smashed and ruined. Your instance altars broken down and what you have made wiped out. These are just two references to idols, but they all look and smell this, this same way. Apparently, um, the removing of idols in our life is not going to be a gentle activity. Whenever you see them, there's references to breaking and smashing, tearing down, burning. I mean, uh, the Lord encourages us to literally get medieval on these things, okay? They are hard to root out of our lives. Why do you suppose that would be? Well, if we've spent a substantial amount of our time and energy building these things up, and they're currently giving us our meaning, it's going to be hard for them to come down, okay? We're going to have to fight for this. So how do you go about doing this in your lives? How do you tear down the idols? I, I really think this is going to be a fairly personal journey for you, depending on what your idol is. But uh, I want to speak through just how this went for me, uh, give you a sense for how uh, God helped me tear down the idol in my life. It, it comes from a work story. Uh, you know, during my industry days, I had some, some wild things go on, but this is one of my, my funnest stories associated with the working world. So as it happened one day, my, uh, my boss gave me a call on the phone. He said, get down to my office, Jason, which was a pretty common thing to have happen. He was a little high strung and uh, ran down to the office. He sat me down and was very perturbed and said, I just got a call from the CEO of the company. He let me know that tomorrow we're going to have a surprise visitor from a potential customer. He's going to come evaluate our facility and determine if we get a huge contract that was pretty much for all the marbles at our company at that point. Okay, really important contract. And so he went into incredibly high gear. I mean, this guy was uh, very high strung. Like I said, he made a, somebody on a, like a five-shot espresso look really relaxed. Uh, yeah. Uh, so his idea was to lay out uh, this beautiful parade route throughout our facility that would show off just how amazing we were so we'd get this contract. And so he planned it, we'd meet at the door, and then we'd go up to our office space where we'd have hundreds of hardworking engineers look industrious, and then we'd take him down to the end of the, of the office space to our trophy case where you'd see all our industry and award-winning uh, accomplishments. And finally, we'd take him into the, the center of our facility and show him our production zone with our $100 million tool cranking out amazing product. And so we laid it all out, but you know, given how high-strung he was, it had to all be perfect. And so... From the door to the office space, he actually had us wash the walls for about six or eight hours. Have you ever done that? That's a super fun activity. Give that a try sometime. Uh, and then two, in the office space where all these engineers were going to be working, I actually had to send out an email saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to have a special visitor, so like, you know, everybody look busy, uh, you know, at least bring up a spreadsheet or a graph and be looking contemplative, you know, like, mm, yeah, definitely getting some done here. And we can go ahead and put away the 
the Tetris and the Minesweeper for the day. Okay, that'd be great. Focus on what we're doing here. We went over to the trophy case and we actually squeegeed the trophy case, you know, so you could see through the glass and see all our trophies. The tool was up and running. Everything was laid out perfectly. And we were ready for our surprise visitor. So he came the next morning. We met him at the door and exchanged pleasantries and let him know what we're gonna do and take him through our facility and this is where we're gonna go and this is what we're gonna do. And this guy was just, he had to be the most, one of the most interesting humans I've ever met in my life. Um, he was super brief in everything he said, but like powerful. He was like Yoda or something, you know, like everything mattered. And then he, he talked really interesting too. He literally, once we told him what we were gonna do, he looked at us both and literally said the following. He said, I don't want to see what you want me to see. I want to see what you don't want me to see. Take me to the boiler room. Now, I know you guys aren't in my industry, but the boiler room is the last place we wanted to take this guy. I mean, it was kind of in a way out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the mainstream place. It was actually two layers underground for us in subfab B, like 100 feet underground. I mean, it was, it was so close to the molten core of the earth down there, you'd get warm if you went there. I hadn't been there in weeks. I didn't know what was going on down there. My boss gave me a look like, please tell me you've been down there recently. And I gave him a look like, you act, that zone actually reports to you. Have you been there recently? And neither one of us had been down there recently and had no idea what was going on down there. But hey, the customer's always right, right? So when the customer says, I'd like to go to the boiler room, we went to the boiler room. By the way, boiler, just a giant tea kettle, okay? Put heat on it, makes hot water, sends it to the facility. So we go down to the boiler room. We get down there, and he starts poking around. He kind of inspects the tools. Everything looks clean. That was good. He starts talking to the technicians. They know what they're talking about. They... Uh, they know the procedures of maintenance on the tool and how to react to things. We had our little procedures posted on the side of the tools. It was going okay, it felt all right. But after 10 minutes down there, this individual literally comes back to us and says, thank you for showing me your facility. That would be all, and walked out of the place. We're like, what about the parade route? We want to show you our, all our stuff. Uh, not happening. He had seen enough in 10 minutes and walked out of the place. So, me and my boss go back to our office, sweating bullets, you know, wondering, okay, that's it, uh, job's over, uh, we didn't do a very good job on the tour. But we got a call from our boss that night, CEO of the company, and he said, congratulations, we've got the contract, he loved the place, we're moving forward with it. And you know, we were doing virtual high fives over go to meeting or whatever we were using. And we were just dumbfounded. Why in the world did he give us that contract? How did that work out? No idea, we didn't care. We were just happy to get the contract. But as fate would have it, the next day, I was flying overseas, went to the San Francisco International Airport, to the Delta Lounge, and who did I run into but this guy? Literally our visitor that day, I ran into him. And so, you know, I exchanged some pleasantries. Oh, thank you for visiting. It was a lovely visit. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you for giving us the contract. But something inside me just had to know, what in the world was he up to with this methodology? And so I just couldn't help myself. This is, this is just like me too, by the way. I just had to blurt it out. Why in the world did you want to go 
to the boiler room. And again, the master of brevity looked at me and said, I knew that if you had your affairs squared away in the heart of the matter where no one would ever think to look, I could trust you with my business. Thank you. And he walked off. And I was, my mind was just blown, like, this guy's got, what a strategy, right? To go poke around in, in the heart of the matter where no one would ever think to look. And, and I, was, I, I was thinking back on that story years later. It was just, that is so like Jesus in our life. He is going to find a way to penetrate in your lives to the heart of the matter, okay? And, and there's going to be times where we want to show him our whitewashed walls, and our religious accomplishments. There's going to be times we want to show them our busy lives, and hey, I've got a lot going on here. For me, uh, there's many times where I wanted to show him my trophy case, those things I had accomplished serving my idol, that even sometimes I said were, were for his name, and they were definitely for my name, not his. Um, but he's going to go to the heart of the matter. Um, he's going to penetrate and, and, and if you allow him in there, he's going to ask you eventually some really tough questions, okay? Tough questions. Dave loves telling me the story about one of the most serious questions Jesus ever asked him. It was during his graduate study days, and he was going through a really hard time. And uh, he really sensed Jesus coming to him and saying, hey, David, am I alone enough for you? Am I alone enough for you. And after a couple decades of, of serving my idol, I genuinely felt like Jesus was coming to me and asking me the question, Jason, would you be willing to do anything that I asked you to do? Anything that I asked you to do? And I feel these two questions are just so similar. Both of them are going right to the first, the great commandment Jesus was telling us. Do you love me with all your heart? Okay? Because if we do, then he will be enough for us. And if I do, I would be willing to do anything he asked me to do. And a few years ago, I really felt like in my heart for the first time, I said, Lord, I am willing to do anything you want me to do. Anything you want me to do. And for me, that eventually meant walking away from my previous career, my previous life completely, cold turkey with no plan, and just moving on and saying, uh, Jesus has something else for me. Now, that's probably not normal. I don't think that's what he's likely asking you to do or necessary, but he is going to ask you to tear down that idol and, and do something that says, this cannot satisfy me. I am gonna put my faith in something that will, that's ultimate, in Christ himself, in God himself. So as I ask the band come up, I just want to pray into this this morning with you guys. Uh, we know the Holy Spirit is here. We know he wants us to hand over our hearts to him. So let's just pray into that this morning as we, as we close up here. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who wants the best for us in life. Lord, you've laid out the roadmap of what best looks like. You are a God who can satisfy us in every way, you are ultimate. You are the only uncreated thing that has the power to give us 
true meaning, fulfillment, and to just fill our hearts with something that can't be taken away, God. And so this morning, as, as each soul in this room, I know you're here, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Will you just convict each one in the room about what is that thing you've been telling them today as we've discussed this? What is that idol in their life, that thing that cannot satisfy that we're making ultimate, God? Where is that negative emotion, that roadmap to what we're really treasuring and fear losing that we don't need to fear losing? Because even if we did, we'd still have you. Just take a moment in your own heart and call this thing out. If you know what it is already, call it out. If it's the first time, just be honest with God here and say, this is the thing, Lord. Jesus, we know you're faithful to giving us a path to work this out. And so we say, what do we need to do, Lord, to tear this idol down in our life and instead replace it with the goodness that is you? Father, help us do that. Give us courage this morning, even symbolically as we sing this last song, to literally lay this thing down on the altar, hand it over to you, Lord. We know you're powerful and you'll be faithful to walking with us towards freedom in you, Lord. And so we ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.